After the death of Pope Adrian VI, the young kings of Spain, France, and England seemed to be less interested in the manipulation of the election of the next pope. Perhaps this is because they realized they could not predict the behavior of the pope. The disinterest of the kings allowed the cardinals to maneuver among themselves for the position of pope, leaving Leo X's cousins, Giulio de' Medici, with a distinct advantage. As Leo's second-in-command, Giulio de' Medici not only understood the position of pope better than any of the other cardinals, he was also a gifted statesman and political operative. In the papal conclave of 1523, Medici would use all of his political skills to secure the papacy for himself. I'm Mike Yagley. And I'm Evan Gertner, and this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to a review of the history and the content of the documents of the Lutheran Reformation, all over a nice cold beer. Okay, so, the third episode on the papacy. Uh, This one is going to be, we had the first episode, which was the rise of Adrian. The death of Leo and the the rise of of Adrian. The death of Leo and the rise of Adrian. Then the papacy of Adrian. Which was short, but... 18 months or so. Yeah, but eventful, since uh, the, the fall, especially with the fall of Rhodes. And now we're into Clement. Or, well, the next pope. The election Foreshadowing. Of the next... Foreshadowing. <laughs> the pope's name is Clement VII. But we won't tell you right away who the pope is going to be. So... Um, let's, let's, uh, and we're spending a lot of time on the papal elections, because I think this is a real good window into just the the way politics were during this era the both both the politics amongst the the national politics with the kings but also church politics with the different cardinals and so so we're going to spend a little bit of time a lot lot to talk about here but we're going to try and come through it all in one episode we'll see if we can so, do that Leo X dies in December of 1521, and at the time, everyone assumed the logical replacement was going to be his cousin, Julio. Julio was Leo's vice chancellor, which is the second in command of the church. He he took that position in March 1517, just a few months before uh, Luther posted his 95 theses. But really, Julio was Leo's right-hand man right from the beginning of his pontificate in uh, 1513. But now he couldn't become officially Leo's vice chancellor in 1513 because he was the illegitimate son of Leo's uncle, Giuliano de' Medici. So since he was illegitimate, he was not allowed to hold a high-ranking position within the church. One of Leo's first acts as Pope was to declare that his cousin's birth was legitimate because his parents were, quote, unquote, wed according to the word of those present. What that, whatever that means, I don't now, know. Nobody knew if that was true, but it did open the door for Julio to become a cardinal. So he was really immediately recognized as having unusually good uh, statesman skills. Uh, he, he, he could negotiate and work through very difficult uh, political situations. In January of 1514, Henry VIII named him the Cardinal Protector of England. Uh, the Cardinal Protector was responsible for representing England in the Roman Curia, and, or as Henry VIII said, for the defense of us and our realm in all matters of the Curia, which really is sort of curious that I think he's the liaison there, sort of like the, between the the Vatican and England there. So he serves both the interests of England and the interests of the Vatican. He's supposed to be the the kind of conciliary that Henry VIII can talk to, so that he knows when he talks to Julio that he's talking right to the Pope. 
I wonder if today there are national representatives. Cardinal uh, protectors like that? Yeah, cardinal protector for uh, Germany or cardinal protector for the U.S. or cardinal protector for... Uh, I, I don't know the current structure. I, I, w- I would doubt that, personally. Yeah. I, I would well, there is that. like the head of the U.S. Council of Bishops. Yeah, but that would be here in the U.S. He would be based here in the U.S. He, right. I'm talking about they're in the Vatican representing American goals or German goals or French goals or whatever mm-hmm. it is right there in the Vatican. Well, that would be a great opportunity for one of our astute uh, listeners who is familiar with the politics of the Vatican that to write be- into our Grace on Tap dot podcast at gmail.com email address we would love to hear about that that. now france is the first of france also recognized julio's unusual skills and appointed him as the cardinal protector of france in 1516 what makes this interesting is that both france and germany uh, france and england have named julio as their cardinal protector but henry and francis do not like each other oh they hated each other they hate so you know, the, having Julio as the French cardinal protector didn't really work out very well for, for Francis. When the personal rivalry between Francis and Emperor Charles V broke into war in northern Italy, uh, Julio Medici sided with Charles. So when France needed their cardinal protector, uh, he skedaddled and sided with the enemy, Charles V. Uh, part of the reason was Julio distrusted Francis because he was selecting the French bishops who were more loyal to himself, the French king, than to the church. We mentioned this uh, in the last episode. We talked a little bit about it. And so we are talking about an event right now in about 1515. Uh, The last episode was taking place during Adrian's time, um, which was seven years later. So just time travel backwards to 1515 with us. So in in 1515, uh, the Francis... King Francis of France defeated the Pope, which is sort of weird to hear, but in the in the Battle of Marignano, and and so the, in the agreement uh, between Francis and the Pope, the Francis, the King of France, was given the ability to 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 call the the bishops of France, and that was called the Concordant of Bologna, and that's going to have more. Uh impact later on in the thinking behind the 30-year war yeah that's we'll get to in that's going episodes you're right that the 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 concordant of bologna is a very important document uh, it sort of destate helps to destabilize that whole era but for the point of this episode uh what it points to is that julio named as the cardinal protector of france um france and the concordant of bologna um how does julio get this position that's a demonstration of his skillful um, statesman ability. So when Leo died in uh, in 1521, going back to before Adrian, when Leo died in 1521, King Francis of France made it clear that he would leave the church if Julio was elected pope. He was still angry that Julio sided, Had sided with, with the emperor. Absolutely. And so that eventually led to the election of Adrian. So after Adrian dies in 1523... Which you can read more about or hear more about in our last episode. Uh, the Roman people were excited to have a new pope named. And they were really... They hated Adrian. Tired uh, of him. Uh, they, they, uh, we talked about that last episode. Anyone besides Adrian at this point they think is a good thing. So, yeah. So it sounds like a good thing uh, that you know the people, the Roman people are going to be behind this guy. 
but it really wasn't. The, the conclave opened on October 1st, and the Roman leadership were just so anxious to get somebody in. Anybody. Anybody in. That they thought the conclave would be short. So the... The the first thing they they start complaining once it opens the cardinals start they think going, right away October first it's going to be over yeah they you know pick pick somebody it's obvious Julio is the guy I I assume that that was because everybody he was by far the most qualified person to be the vice president the vice chancellor for the previous two popes and his name is still in the ring they all expect go into your meeting let the smoke out we all know who's elected. And and so they're they're like, come on, come on, come on, let's go, let's go. It doesn't happen that way. the The first thing is they they say, okay, the cardinals are playing for time. They tell the the Roman leadership, hey, the entire French party has not yet arrived. And you, you know, the French cardinals, the French had out of the forty two cardinals or something total number of forty two cardinals, the French had like eighteen of them or eighteen or nineteen of them. Yeah, forty one. 41, thank you. So there were 41 Cardinals total, and the French had, what was the number? Was it 19? The French? Yeah, the French had 19. We'll, we'll get to some of the details, but just the hint that the Cardinals are going to wait for the French to sh- arrive yeah. lets everybody know Julio's not the shoe-in. Because if the French arrive, that means clearly Julio's not going to get the nomination election on the first ballot. Well, they need they need 22 votes. Whoever it is has to have... 22 votes or 20 21 21 i'm all this is why you wrote it down (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad you're reading it all right so (laughs) so let's let's just go with this october 8th um the french are there and now the roman leadership think it's gonna happen but it doesn't happen right away what's what's the problem it should happen so the roman leadership reduces the cardinals food to one meal a day to try to get them to make a decision. Now, that's not easy for the, the Cardinals. All right, They're... so now, Mike, this is where we talk about the math. And this is why you wrote it down. All right, yeah. so there are 38 Cardinals in attendance. Yes. But three were absent and were not going to arrive. So there are a total of 41 Cardinals with votes, but you need 21 to become the Pope. It's you need not, 50%. You need 50%, not of who's present, but of the total. Yes. And... 19 at this point have already declared their alignment with the French. So so they're French. They're French. Selected by the French king. Because of the Concordia of Bologna. Because of the Concordia So almost half of the people there, half of the cardinals, are But coming, not half. But not quite half. And so, so all they knew, the French have a huge influence over who's going to be the next pope. They should. They, they should need, have a huge they, influence. They would just need two people... Yes. Decide with them. But the division in the French party leaves them open to being manipulated. Though there are 19 that are aligned with the French, they don't all agree among themselves. And we'll get to what their challenge is. So let's go back to the the way... The, their only instructions from Francis I. So the, the, the French delegations coming in, all 19 of them, they're coming in and they have instructions from Francis... He doesn't have, all he cares about is don't give it to Giulio Di Medici. I hate that guy. Don't give him any votes. So they align themselves with Emperor Charles V. Well, so they're, some of kind them. Kind of, some well, of them. That's called the Imperialist Party. Okay, so there's, there's the, what it breaks down into is there are two parties. 
There's the Imperialist Party, who's sort of trying to support Emperor Charles V. So, Imperial Emperor. Right. And then there's the French Party, who oh. is aligned with France. Anybody but Julio. Anybody but Julio. And then you've got Henry the Eighth from England. from England, who has negotiated with... Uh, he has a previous uh, agreement with Emperor Charles V that Charles will give his support to Wolsey, Cardinal Wolsey. So Wolsey's still in the mix, even though he didn't get the election after Leo's death. Right. Right. So we've got the imperialist. They're aligned then with Charles V and Julio. Julio. Um, Charles wants Cardinal Medici, but he also supports another cardinal, Farnese, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, so we've got some imperialists, we got some French, and then you got some unidentified. Yeah, not aligned with either. And Henry's influence is pretty weak at this point. So, so you know, he, Wolsey's name is always in here, but he doesn't really get a whole lot of votes. Okay, so Wolsey quickly forget about him. Yeah. All right. So, this so you is have really two the two factions. The imperialist faction supporting Charles and the French faction. Now, this is where things get interesting. So, who do the French support? Well, that's sort of complicated. Now, <laughs> if it wasn't complicated already, it gets more complicated. Now, in the midst of this complication, this took us like five minutes to get this far. The Roman people are also frustrated. And they come to the Cardinals on October 10th with more threats. And at that point, the Cardinals threatened to elect another foreigner. And they back down because they don't want another barbarian, right? And so, so the so the, the the Roman leadership backs down for a few days, gives them some time. They're still only getting one meal a day, but at least they get a meal. So, so you have the what ends up happening is the French party is broken up into really two groups, and I, I probably I'm going to just give the overall. The French party is broken up into the, the older guys and the younger guys. Okay. The younger cardinals recognize there's no way any of them are going to become the Pope. So they're not advocating for themselves. They're not advocating for themselves. They're just saying, hey, you older guys, you decide amongst yourself. We'll be on your team. Now, the older guys, can they decide among themselves? Of course not. (laughs) Because they each want it. They each want it. So it's like the older guys are going to caucus together and figure out who's going to be the Pope and they each vote for themselves, which means none of them are being chosen. Right. And so the young guys are all very angry at the older guys because it's just, just decide. We're going to support one of you. Pick one of you. You're all good. And the older guys, are they, they start arguing amongst themselves and they never come to an agreement. So the French party finally settles on Cardinal Jean-Maria Del Monte. Now Cardinal Medici promised that he would give up three votes if Cardinal Monti could get 18 votes on his own, which would have given Cardinal Monti the 21 votes, the majority, which was needed to become Pope. It would also give a green light to the Medici party to vote for Monti in the next round. Right. Now, so, so does Monti get his 18 votes? Well, he gets 16 votes. That's not 18. And when the front and the members of the French party saw that he was gaining traction, three of them changed their votes to get to 19. But... So now this isn't the first election, though. Now, on the second one, he's getting 19. He's getting 19. Now, Medici said the deal was 18 votes the first time around. Yep. So, so Medici withdraws his offer of giving three votes over to Monti. And now the French party 
are infuriated because no progress was made. They had thought they had the votes when they got on the second round of voting. Monty did 19 votes. They thought with the 19 votes that they got and with three votes for Medici, they've got the win on the next vote. But Medici says, you didn't get it in the first round. He so reneges. He reneges. You didn't get it in the first round, so you don't get my three votes. Now try to get things moving again. Medici suggests that the French party agree on one name. Assume it was implied that he would support whoever they agree on if they could just all agree on French, just agree on one name. And again, they break down into the, the younger guys are willing to work together. The older guys, the senior guys are fighting amongst themselves. The French can't agree. Essentially, Medici has said, you guys have it. I'm going to give it to you. Just pick a name. Whoever you pick, just pick one. So this is sort of clever, the way Medici... Medici he gets them eating themselves. He gets them eating themselves, and he aligns himself with the younger guys. He, he basically says, you know, hey, I'm I'm with you younger guys. You know, if, if the older guys could all agree on something, I'm with you. I'll, so now I'm, he's starting to secure the younger guys' vote. Exactly. sounds reasonable. Exactly. Well, we need to take a beer break. Um, our beer break is uh, Ballast Point Brewing Company, Victory at Sea. Now this is a this is a beer out of California, and uh, this is not a Michigan beer. This is a uh, this is this beer. Uh, you know, I, I was looking at our statistics. We're getting more California listeners now. And so sometimes when we get a, a spike in... Well, like when we tried the Japanese beer. We tried the Japanese beer, that's right. Or the German beer. Well, now we've, we're going with a, a... And I think we had an Ohio beer at one point. Uh, but that, that was, was a mistake. That, <laughs> <laughs> but, but we have... Now we have... California is not a mistake. No. This California beer is... An, this is Ballast Point Victory at Sea. I thought victory... Let's see. Given that we're talking about the papal conclave, and there's going to be a victory. At the somebody's going to have a victory in this. Crafted and bottled in San Diego, California. Uh, they are proud of their San Diego hometown, their employees, their beers, and the fans that they have. Uh, they think of them as family. I think every uh, craft brewer hopes that his employees and fans are all family. These guys, um, they they're uh, they give back to the community. Um, High they, emphasis on quality. They even have a quality lab where they focus on yeast health, propagation, and fermentation, along with shelf life stability. Did you know that when Budweiser, during the Prohibition, uh, became experts on uh, breads and things like that? Because, well, they weren't making beer anymore, but they had this huge collection of yeast. I didn't know that. And uh, so... That's how they got to be bread experts? Yeah. Did they and make bread to this day? Well, they had Eagle Snacks. Uh, which was a kind of pretzel oh, yeah, company. Yeah. Um, then uh, they ended up selling off Eagle Snacks. Um, okay. Because okay. they were starting to fall apart. Okay. Okay. Well, the but so, so yeah, they, um, Ballast Point agrees with yeast quality. No, they they uh, they have the their symbol is a sextant. Um, we often we are asked to, asked to explain the symbol of our in our logo. The sextant is a navigational device used to measure a star's angle relative to the horizon. Historically used as a nautical tool to help determine a boat's position. For us, the sextant is a reminder to keep on our journey, continuing to seek out new ideas, new flavors, and new people to share our beer and spirits with. Victory at sea. What kind of flavor is it? <clears throat> it's a robust coffee, sweet caramel, and aromatic vanilla. And it's an imperial porter, and it is uh, alcohol by volume. It is ten percent. 
It is a... And it is a dark beer. Another dark beer. We had the... The, the, the Night one. Fury, stronger than a dragon attack in our last episode from <laughs> Witch's Hat, which was 13.5%. It was dark as night. This one is also dark. Um, now, the sextant would be used when you can see the stars. I can't see any stars to this thing. You know, no, this is, this this is, is pretty is, thick. This is pretty thick stuff. But, but it's, it's got more of a head. It does. It does. This had a pretty good head when I when I poured it. Uh, again, it's a very rich beer. This is another very rich beer. These, this, yeah. uh, not, uh, not, not a summer beer, not a summer beer. Not an we're we're moving into the, we're it's moving fall. into the fall winter. We beers. are appropriately wearing our fall colors and our sweaters. Absolutely. It is sweater weather. It is here in Michigan. It's, uh, one of the first cold days of the year, but this is excellent beer. Very, uh, uh, really, yeah, it's it's hard to complain about these. I, I like these thick beers in the wintertime. I, yeah. I really do. And this know. big porter crafted to weather any storm. We appreciate uh, our Ballast Point victory at Sea Imperial Porter. Uh, so Ballast Point Brewing Company, good job. Cheers. Cheers. Okay. <clears throat> so we, we uh, left it with Medici working on the younger French to show the foolishness of the older French. So there was really the two groups. We all, we talked about them a couple of times. They're the imperialists. They have about 16 votes, votes, and they're the supporters of Medici, Giulio Medici. And now the French, they have 19 votes, but they can't figure out who to commit them to. Just somebody other than Medici. That's the instruction they've gotten from Francis I, the king. Now, we've been highlighting the problems with the French as being between the juniors who are willing to work together and the seniors who are trying to get themselves elected. And, and Julio, through his maneuvers, has gotten the seniors eating themselves up. So, now, simplified view of French politics, we know. Now, unfortunately, uh, we're going to have to make things, we're going to have to dive into this a little bit deeper. Uh, and get sort to try and untangle what happens next and how Medici maneuvers through all of this. Because it's not like just a light switch and suddenly he's got it. There's no. some more maneuvering. Absolutely. So, so let's, let's sort of, let's first, who for, do we got? Well, uh, there's this, um, uh, there's Albert Pio. Now, Albert, uh, Alberto Pio is an am- ambassador of the fr- King of France and he shows up in late October. Now, he is a friend of Medici. Now, the French king had said anybody but Medici, but now the ambassador of the king of France shows up, and he happens to be a friend of Medici. So, maybe some mixed messages on the way. Right. And so, he's trying to convince the French party that Medici would be as good for France as anybody. Although he wasn't immediately successful, he did soften them up a little bit. It shows that the single instruction they got from Francis I was anybody Medici may not be as solid as they thought. And that's one thing, as I've been reading a little bit about Francis, Francis is sort of like that, where he's very emotional. He's he's an excellent... Uh, Francis, King Francis of France was an excellent politician, but he's a, he's sort of a, he was literally a, like a political animal where he used his instincts a lot and he would sort of sniff the wind and say, and he would change dramatically from one thing to the next, depending on what was going on. And so this, the, I could see where if Pio shows up and says, yeah, the, the king sort of says he's not yeah, so bad anymore. He's not so bad. Yeah. And I, I could see where the, 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 cardinals would say oh okay well maybe we'll give it a look yeah. now remember uh, october 1st the conclave opened up they said no no we gotta wait for the french the french show up october 5th and then we had uh then october 8th 
uh, wasn't it? Yeah. The Roman leadership reduced them to one meal. Yeah. Then they're more anxious. And then the cardinals say, well, you know, we could just elect a foreigner. So then the Roman uh, magistrates back off a little bit. Now, it's November 11th. And they're getting really ticked. The Roman magistrates. They want a pope figured out. They want this conclave to be done with. And so they threaten to reduce the food for the cardinals, not just from one meal a day, but to now simply just be bread and water. So it's at this point that Cardinal Farnese makes his move. He approaches the Duke of Sessa to make a deal. Now, the Duke of Sessa is a Spanish noble who's closely aligned with the imperialist and the Holy Roman Emperor. So he offers the Duke uh, a, a substantial amount of money and, and a candidate for the Duke's brother, a cardinalate for the Duke's brother, if the Duke would support giving the imperial votes to Farnese. This is, this is Cardinal Farnese wanting to be the next pope. So, so he... Maneuvers to get the imperialist <clears throat> votes. Now, how many votes did the imperialists have? The imperialists have 16. 16 votes. So if Cardinal Farnese gets those 16 votes, is that enough? No, because he needs 21. Now, uh, Cardinal Farnese, what I didn't look up, and he might be, if he's French, he might get a portion of the French votes, and that might be enough to put him over. It seems like it worked, because shortly after, the one of the leaders of the French cardinal uh, party, Cardinal Colonna, proposes Farnese as the next pope. So Farnese is proposed by a Frenchman to get the votes. He thinks he has in the background the imperialist votes. So, so oh, Farnese is Spanish. That's right. So he's Spanish, but he's maneuvering. He's sort of looking at himself as being like independent. He's marginally aligned with the imperial party. He's got friendly, he's friendly relations with the French party. He thinks he can work this out. So you've got a Spanish cardinal working with a Spanish duke getting proposed by a French leader. Yes. So We're starting to see the French bloc breaking up. So now the thing is, is that several cardinals objected to Farnese on moral grounds. So whether they're French or imperialists or they're among the neutrals, many cardinals from across all those parties say, no, not this guy. So Farnese, Why? How come? he has many mistresses, he has children, he has, he is sort he's of, he's a throwback, huh? he's a throwback to the old style popes and they recognize with the Lutheran, uh, with the Reformation coming on that they can't go we back. We got to be on our best guard. Right. We can't go back to those Renaissance popes that could just indulge themselves. Exactly. So now there's a couple of versions of what happens next. Both have to do with Colonia. He's the French cardinal that had proposed Cardinal Farnese. So in one version, it says that Colonna claimed that he was frustrated that the French had turned against his candidate Farnese. So he gave his support to Medici. The French are now maneuvering to maybe support the guy that Francis had said anybody but this guy, but then Albert Peel, the ambassador, said, eh, maybe the king would maybe be so happy. Maybe it's not so bad. Now, Colonna and Orsini families, they hated each other. How did he Orsini's so, get involved? Another name. So another source. So the one source says that, okay, let's go back. So the one source says that the, that Colonna was frustrated with the French, and so he, he basically said, I'm going to give my, my support to Medici and the imperialists. Another source says that when the Farnese proposal fell apart, 
the majority of the French said that they supported Cardinal Orsini. So a majority of the French are going to now support Cardinal Orsini. Right. What does Colonna think about this? He hates Orsini. So Colonna and the, the Colonna and Orsini families hate each other. And this goes way, 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 way back. And so, so. But they're both Cardinals. Right. And so Colonna, who he only controls four votes, but he he realized that he would be more appreciated in the Medici camp. So rather than Colonna supporting who all the other French are supporting in Cardinal Orsini, Colonna, with his four votes, realizes that he should find someone that likes him more. Yeah. And who's that one that likes him more? Medici. Well, he knows that Medici will be more appreciative. It's because Medici like, understands the politics. Well, and Medici, basically, the French are taking his votes, his four votes, for granted. And he knows if he takes those votes and gives them to Medici, Medici's going to not take them for granted, and he's going to get something for those votes. And that's exactly what happens. So with Colonna's four votes, Medici now has enough, and he gets elected. And after the election, Colonna received a palace and the position of second-in-command vice-chancellor of the Vatican in return. Uh, either And then at the end, uh, that was on November 19th, 1523, Giulio Medici became Pope Clement VII. So from October 1st to November 19th, that's how long the conclave lasted. On bread and water for a period there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's 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 rough. Uh, Clement inherited a mess from his cousin Leo X, and, I'm, and things and he, didn't get any better with a- Adrian. So now... Encyclopedia Britannica calls Clement the most unfortunate of popes. He wasn't... Although he was a gifted statesman and a brilliant administrator, Clement would be just as frustrated as Adrian in untangling the competing interests of the late medieval Europe. So, for some people, this may be kind of frustrating to hear the politics of a conclave, this trading of votes and things like that. Um, And they, they wonder, is this really what the church is like? Is the church just a matter of of trading and maneuvering and serving of self-interest. And I hope that's not what the church is like. But I do know that sometimes people who work in the church as church secretaries or or administrators inside of a church, they sometimes can get frustrated as they see uh, the how the phones are answered or emails or who knows the business of just being a church. And I, I, I worry that this last 40 minutes might give someone the impression that the church is all just politics. Well, this was the church of the 16th century. Mm -hmm. The Roman Catholic church of the 16th century, a big part of it was politics. And it's rather foreign to our ears, I think. Yeah, we think that this this never happens. The church is just about serving and caring and administering the word of God in our day. and And, you know, thank God. That this is foreign to our ears. You know, yeah. this is... But the, in your own history, you've had to deal with some of the politics of the church. And, oh, absolutely. And, and you've gotten to see kind of that, I, I've seen that the, conclave side of things. I've seen the knives come out. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's... Uh, We're not at our best at this kind of time. No. No. When... when It's... You know, we are... Luther says, when uh, whenever God builds a, a church, the devil builds a chapel. And... and yeah, there, there's always within every church, there's, there's, there's that, that problem, the problems of, of human sinfulness come along with every, every saint that walks in the door. So why didn't Adrian, who, who sought holiness, become the clarion call that saw through this mess? 
I think a, a big part of that was uh, Adrian lacked the, uh, the the common touch. He he thought that he could he could lead um, by by example, but that yeah. that example was was cloistered away essentially in the Vatican. So to lead a church and, and lead people isn't about a personal piety, but it's about that ability to inspire this piety in others. This idea of, of faith and practice isn't just what I do, but then my ability to share this with others. I, I that's what that's the lesson of Adrian. Yeah. Um, so how does Clement do? Well, we'll get into that, uh, but I'll, I'll give a little. In fifteen twenty seven, I believe it is. Uh, Clement is the Pope who is seated in Rome when, when Rome is sacked by, uh, by Emperor Charles V. So some politics. Some politics. And, you know, and, and so there's the, the sacking of Rome is one of the turning points of, of church history. Uh, it's, it's, you know, Clement, uh, this is a very, very, if we think that we live in a, uh, a tumultuous time today, it's nothing. It was a highly politicized time as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So, uh, so the, the we're kind of caught up with our popes, though. We now. we are caught up with our popes, and we can get back to Luther uh, and and sort of see what Luther's up to during the same period. I thought it was important for us to to go through and understand what's happening with the popes uh, on that side of the fence, because going forward. Clement is going to be the Pope that Luther is going to be engaging with if he ever does engage with the Roman yeah, Catholic Church. So Clement's Church. a pretty significant Pope, uh, the Pope during the time of the Augsburg Confession. And, exactly. And this time as well. Yeah, so I, I wanted to sort of bring us all up to speed with that. Well, thanks for our listeners. Uh, thanks to Josh Yeagley for uh, his work as a sound engineer. Uh, recognition of our source materials, uh, Britannica.com, uh, Wikipedia, and uh, the incredible investigations that you have done, Mike, in preparation for these last three episodes is quite appreciated. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, catch us on graceontap.podcast at gmail.com, uh, or you can catch us at graceontap-podcast.com. Uh, that's where we post a, that's a, basically a blog uh, that has some of the content and, and also has, uh, you can actually listen to the, the, the podcast there. And on Facebook, uh, we try to update whenever we have a new post online. And so just on the Facebook search window, put in Grace on Tap podcast and you'll find us there. Okay. Cheers. Cheers.